The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to Very Loose Women. Good evening, listeners. I'm Leo, and I am with your regular co-host, Emma. Hi, Emma. Hi, Leo. How's it going? I'm okay, thanks. And we are joined by tonight's guest, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Lisa is a lecturer in history at the University of Tübingen with very in-depth knowledge of the Roman Empire. So tonight we're going to be asking her about gender roles in the 2nd and 1st century BC in what is now Italy, specifically around marriage and property rights. First, as ever, let's start with gripe of the week. Emma, would you like to start? Well... I've got a kind of gripe and a mini celebration and they both involve my choir that I I was just at choir practice which is why it's very pertinent. Firstly my mini celebration which is that last week it was so cold when we were rehearsing that we were just at all absolutely freezing and I brought a hot water bottle for this week because I was so worried that I was going to freeze again and I didn't even need to use it because it was slightly less freezing. So my celebration of the week is that it wasn't absolutely freezing when I was singing. And my gripe also relates to choir, which is, it's also not really a gripe, which is that there's a guy in choir who I always sit next to, he has a beautiful voice, but his voice is so beautiful that sometimes it makes me feel very inadequate because it's so wonderful, um, which isn't really a complaint and, you know, good for him. I should say right now that we are in a corridor in my university and that is what any doors that you can hear is. So there we are. What is your gripe, Felisa? Um, my gripe today is that I'm wearing extremely sensible shoes And yet, I feel like I'm having the legs of a 50-year-old woman. So, you know, very heavy legs this evening. I saw heavy legs and I thought, that's a Leo type thing. She's always talking about heavy legs. And I think it's not something that people in Britain generally gripe about. It's a a French problem often. So I'm sure Leo was very happy that you said heavy legs. And your face tells me that that she was. We've had a little chat about it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm on the topic of heavy legs. It's a thing. And... (laughs) I didn't say it wasn't a thing. I just said I knew you'd be extremely pleased that someone would confirm it was a thing. Yeah, the the French government actually subsidised heavy legs medication. And it just shocks me every time that it's not recognised as an actual thing in the UK. My gripe is similar to yours, Emma. Um, I'm not wearing my big coat today, but when I do wear it, when it's really cold and then you get in the tube and then you sweat loads and then you smell all day, what do you do about that? People around you suffer. That's what you do. Nothing. Yeah, well, anyway, that's my gripe. It's sort of logistics around heat. Now, on to the main topic of the show which is about these gender roles in Rome. First of all, before we get onto that, Lisa, what are you doing in the UK? I'm giving a paper in Oxford on Wednesday. And so today I came to London to, well, chat with you girls um, and also see some people at UCL. Cool. Well, thanks for coming along. Could you tell us a little more about what you research? So I work on ancient cities in the Mediterranean, so cities such as Athens and Rome. And I'm generally interested in the institutions that they build and how then their citizens sort of use those institutions to make a difference in their lives. 
So what sort of institutions? One of the things I work on is how law is so central for how the Romans thought about running their empire. And so if you compare this to how other ancient empires, essentially in um, how other ancient empires in the, Med- in the Mediterranean, ran their empire, this is really unusual. And so in one of my projects, I just tried to figure out why law became so implicated in the empire, in the Roman case. And how did you become interested in studying the Roman Empire? I started out working on violence in Greek cities and sort of thinking about why they considered certain types of violence legitimate. Um, and then I started you know, thinking about how to change it throughout time and found that once they came under Roman imperial rule, so once they become part of the Roman Empire, changes drastically. Sort of what types of violence they'll think are okay and they're willing to back. So what's an example of something they thought was fine and then not fine? So one of the things, uh, so for example, a phenomenon called private violence. Um, and so this is uh, you're a citizen of City A um, and you're in a dispute with a citizen of City B. And instead of going to trial or going to court, you just go grab something from him or from his neighbor or, you know, from, from his friend. And so among Greek cities, before the Roman Empire, that, that was fine. And once you get, un, once they get under Roman rule, that, that practice essentially stops and they no longer back it. Um, and so that's when I sort of first started thinking, all right, what's, you know, what's going on there? And then you sort of, from that angle, I worked my way into the Roman Empire. And looking at the institutions yeah. through that. My next question is about toga parties, because it seems quite relevant to your area of research. Have you ever been to one? Does it really annoy you when people are historically inaccurate? Never been to a toga party, never worn a sheet. Sorry. Have you been to a toga party? I have. I have. I'm really sorry to upset you if, if it's something that might upset you, but um, I have been to a toga party. I'm not sure if that's cultural appropriation, but um, I've certainly worn some sort of sheet design. Um, and I, I'm sure there was a big dispute actually at the party as to whether or not it was better to get a fitted sheet or whatever the opposite of a fitted sheet is. A loose, and I loose sheet. <laughs> yeah, is that, is, that, is that really the opposite? And what is your historical opinion on that? What kind of sheet would you choose? I think generally the Romans did not know Elastan, you know, so not, nothing stretchy. Okay, I'm really glad that you had an actual answer to that ridiculous question. <laughs> but surely as a woman you were wearing a stola. Wow, I don't know what that is. I think everyone was in a toga, which is maybe also anachronistic. And I also remember actually something that was particularly amusing about this toga party was there were a lot of fake grapes. Like they placed a lot of kind of fake bunches of grapes around yes, yes. that I was enjoying heartily. Exactly. Many of those were had. On to the crux of what we're going to talk about, which is gender roles. What brought gender roles in Rome to your attention? Um, so it's a, I think it's a, you know, a nice story, well, and that is possibly not so nice coincidence of the personal and the, and the professional. So at the time I was, well, unfortunately at the receiving end of, 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 um, of sexual harassment at work. Um, and so, right, being an academic, one way in which I decided to deal with it was, was to just read a lot about it. And so that means you read a lot about gender. And then at the same time, some people in London here actually were starting to put together a workshop on, on gender and empire, sort of in the Roman case, which are sort of two fields of study or two questions that haven't been looked at together. And so I decided, all right, let's, let's give this a shot. And why do you think that is that hasn't really been looked at? Um, you mean together? Yeah. They're, oh, they're, they're just such... You know, there's been lots of work and for, sort of for ancient Greece and Rome on gender and sexuality. You know, there's, there's such fantastic material there, basically. And at the same time, of course, there is empire and, you know, you study the military and domination. Um, I think in various ways, they've just been very different tribes of people who sort of investigate these fields. So, so they, just, they just never meet. Let's, let's just put it that way. They hadn't overlapped yet. You were in this position of seeing both empire and gender in the same page. 
what did you notice through that? Well, I think the, sort of the most important thing to understand is that at the beginning of empire, of, at least at the beginning of the Roman Empire, empire means the absence of men, the absence of, it, of Italian men from Italy, because they're, you know, they're in Greece, they're in Gaul, they're in Spain, they're in Africa, essentially conquering the peoples and places um, that would later become Roman provinces. And so, yeah, like in, I think we know in the most extreme cases, sort of they can be gone for they could be gone for up to twenty or thirty years in the in the in the second century BC. So, you know, that had like massive implications for gender roles, both structurally and in terms of perception, back in Italy, back back at homes in the sort of in the center of the empire. So, from the perspective of the women, if your husband is gone for thirty years, do you remarry or or are there any men to remarry? Even are there any men there at all? One would imagine that, yes, of course, some men stayed behind. But I think the main thing for women, you know, and, and, and sort of particularly for women who had already married, you know, they, they would marry very young, um, and then their husband would be, you, you know, essentially forced to join the Roman military, um, and, you know, off you go, 20 years Spain, is that they had sort of much more factual control of their household. You know, there is sort of a nice Horace, who's a Roman poet, sort of in the first century BC, writes really nicely sort of about the Italian farmer sons who bring home the harvest to their stern mothers. Right? You, you sort of see that, um, see the control. And at the same time, um, something really interesting happens in Roman law, which basically recognizes, begins to recognize this factual control and starts to say that, Roman, that, that women can be property owners, which is really, which is really new and, and sort of a huge shift with long-term consequences in Roman history and beyond. So just to give an example, I'm willing to speculate that basically the, the main reason, or one of the main reasons why Christian bishops, early Christian bishops, cared, cared about women um, and their welfare was because they were property owners. The, and, it, and it's sometimes incredibly wealthy, incredibly wealthy independently of their husbands. And so, you know, could just, could just control all that, all that wealth. So how did the, this property ownership, you're saying it's in their name, and are you saying it's directly linked to the fact that their husbands aren't there? Is that, is that a correlation? It's that it starts to make much more sense to have women with legal capacity, you know, who can, who can transact in their own right, um, just if their husbands, their fathers are essentially gone. In terms of that, when the husbands do, I guess not all of them return, but like when they do return, how does that work? What's the kind of, it must be a kind of strange power dynamic or property-owning dynamic. Can you tell us anything about that? Another thing that changes and, and that sort of I think is important for answering your question in terms of gender roles is that it's at exactly that point in time that Roman men and women begin to figure out that in a marriage they actually like each other, that they have affection for each other and that they love each other. And so this is, in my opinion, you can see this as a way of dealing with the distrust, you know, that this distance and separation um, induces. And so one of the ways in which I think they also then deal with this sort of changed legal situation when the men come back is also by insisting on the fact that, that you know, essentially they face the world together, you know, and, and love each other very much and care for each other very much, care for their children very much. And so, you know, do make decisions together, etc., etc. that pertains to both of their properties. But I don't understand, if, if the husband's away, why does love come into it then? Because they're, they're not... Like, how are they facing things together if they've never been more apart? How is love involved if they're not together? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, it's a way of staying together, you know, and, and, and insisting and convincing each other that they have the same interests in spite of them being apart. And, you know, essentially the husband not being there to essentially control his wife physically, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you know, bluntly put, you come up with the story. 
um, that you do really like each other and have affection for each other and you know your children are very sweet and you love them um, and so that's why you have shared interests and will pursue them and there was no evidence before that of people no. couples loving them loving each other um, not sort of um, I mean I think the interesting thing is sort of sort of how widespread this sort of insistence on mutual affection then then becomes and how public it becomes and no but like but 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 sort of basically before the second century BC I mean we have very little evidence for just about anything before okay. the second century BC but in what we have there is no trace of that instead what you get essentially is husbands insisting on their sons their wives their slaves essentially being under their control and that that's what family is about. So just to kind of just to kind of clarify, presumably there's, you know, poetry and writing about romantic love, but we're talking about specifically within a marriage. That's not the f- it didn't seem like initially that was a function of a marriage was not about love. No, it's when when we hear early second century sources talking about the function of, of a marriage and, and that's it's very much from the male perspective is to basically reproduce yourself and, and, and you know leave an heir uh, leave someone who can uphold and, and you know be another you and thus uphold the memory of you if so if they're facing the world together as you phrased it does it mean that there's a notion of equality in the marriage of like they're both equals because you say in the other circumstance the man is kind of dominating the household with the slaves and the wife with the man away does it mean that they're a bit more and the women being property owners does it mean that it's a bit more equal i think you know for example this is still a society in which you know it's mainly men who appear in public life you know when it comes to how they thought about their relationships i doubt whether they would have thought about it in terms of equality but there was certainly an idea that that they were together and doing things together I'm actually quite interested in the kind of idea that there's kind of single parent families then at this point because there must be a whole generations of kids who are brought up without a father figure and that must also be, I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Uh, this is really interesting, so uh, actually there is right now, there's lots of research being done on this and so there, there's a project in, that's located in Basel, Switzerland called Be Growing Up Fatherless in Antiquity and so, oh. f- you know, for, f- for various reasons and sort of Roman imperialism is just one of them we should imagine lots and lots and lots of people grew up um, without fathers. In the Roman case, I think sort of, you know, a little anecdote that I quite like is that you, you often see sort of in the biographies of late Republican politicians that essentially in their early careers they were advised by their mothers, politically. So, so um, who, who, who then, I, uh, well, I, I think on the one hand that's a good way of, sland- of slandering a politician, you know, of mm-hmm. saying, oh, you got all your you know, ideas, which are all bad ideas from your mother. But on the other hand, I, I do think that, that there must be some reality behind this. Essentially, you know, as fathers, as uncles are, are, are away on campaigns, um, that, that mothers sort of step in in this way. So I'm just curious, um, so you're saying the men come back after 20 or 30 years. Why are they returning? Is it because they've got too old or is it they've completed a campaign? What's the reason they're coming back after that point? Um, I, basically, it really can be both. And I think the important thing is that it really matters where you got sent to begin with. So if you got sent to Greece, campaigns tend to be quite short and it's quite likely that after five, six years, all right, you're done, you know, and a war was won, etc. If you got sent to Spain, if you got sent to Gaul, so essentially if you got sent to fight against barbarians, or, well, people whom the Romans thought were barbarians, chances are the war is never over. And, you know, because the barbarians are always aggressive, so you have to fight them. Um, so, you know. But then also, tough luck. there might be people who die and... That then, then does that mean that the women do they do you notice that they often choose to remarry or do they like staying single when that happens? I think there is basically we don't have the evidence to answer that. And as as property owners, did they start gaining more rights elsewhere in life? 
the women, obviously. So by the end of this period, basically, you have the first women who start to represent themselves in court, who, who appear in themselves in court. And that's something that they, that they claim for themselves, essentially. But apart from that, I think the, the really sort of the rights question, it, it is restricted to property. And, and there, is like the, the, there is long legislation about just what property rights women can have. So whether they can be guarantors, for example. You know, who they can um, leave their property to. Whether they can actually make that decision. You know, all these, um, yeah. So can they leave their property to another woman? Uh, yeah. So are there any kind of modern day places that you can, can kind of make a comparison with that maybe have a similar def- demographic and what sort of effects that have on the population there? Um, well, look, you, you know, sort of the obvious parallels are, you know, sort of in, in our sort of history or European history, sort of World War One and World War Two, very, very complicated and, and I think problematic ways in um, which sort of women experienced emancipation. Um, various levels um but it's sort of much more personally as uh, sort of as i started working on this i um i realized that basically i come from a place um where gender roles um have been shaped by by male by male absence and by and by male migration so i grew up among with sort of very opinionated self-assured women who controlled the household finances and gave pocket money to their husbands and you know that includes the case of the local bank director who everyone knew that his wife at home, like, you know, he was receiving pocket money that then on a Sunday he could spend in the local, like, in the, in the equivalent of the, of the local pub, essentially. And so, yeah, I think this dynamic, that sort of migration, whether it's seasonal, whether it's longer term, um, and, and the way in which you can separate couples, it just tends to affect whenever it occurs. It just tends to affect how they understand their relationship. Where were all your men? Up until, let's say, maybe 50 years ago, where I'm from, which is an Austrian Alpine Valley, Basically, the main source of income was a type of transhuman pastoralism. So basically, in this place, no grain grows. And what you do is you pasture cows. And in the summer, they're up in the upland pastures. And in the winter, they're down in the stable and you feed them the hay that you've harvested in the summer. Which means that in the summer, actually, um, because you can just leave the cows up there and you need very little people to tend to them. So in the, in the summer, you have a lot of men that then leave or, or that would leave and do, and do temple work. For, uh, for a couple of months and then return. Um, and so that's the, that's that story. So, you know, it's a type of agricultural regime and basic poverty that, that leads to that situation. Just when you're researching, what kind of sources were you using for your information? And was there any writing by women that you were reading? I'm going to guess the answer is no, but you know, I'm hopeful. You never know. You never know. <laughs> no, so look, if you're, if you're an ancient historian, you basically you, you take what you can get. Um, so there's lots of poetry. There's fantastic, actually, for this period, there's fantastic Roman comedy. Um, so things that basically Roman jokes. So that's that's always something you can work with. And then there is political speeches, there is letters, and so that's just that's just what you draw on. There's inscriptions, there's public monuments, you know, like so so really you take what you can get. And then in terms of any sources by women, I'm just gonna go ahead and now say no, because that's that's the easy answer and I think it's a proper answer. <laughs> can you tell us your favourite Roman joke? No, but I can tell you the joke that my favourite joke with which I grew up in this sort of valley, which was that, you know, in, in the region there was pretty much no need for female emancipation or for women's emancipation, but really sort of male self-help groups would be quite nice. You, do you notice parallels between, beyond that, just in the specifics of the, of the women and between, between Rome and Austria? Have you noticed, like, any small, like little details like you said for example that the women were very self-assured and they made all the all of the decisions so have you come across literature 
where you see like similar character traits or you know just in the I'm talking about the really fine detail where you've been like oh I could never put this in an academic essay but that's odd I think mainly the difference might be in the jokes because sort of um, Roman comedy is also full of women who sort of you know lock their husbands out of their who basically victimize their husbands and then write sort of joke about you know you need male self-help groups well that's exactly the the um, that's also a joke about victimization and I think that just pretty much tells you that, you know, in spite of all these changes and, and, and you know, they love each other now and, and, you know, like, women sort of have more control of over-economic things, it's still basically a patriarchal society where you can laugh at the idea that a woman might, you know, might tell a man what to do. And, and that in itself is a, is a, is a joke. Um, and are there any kind of particularly notable or any specific uh, female figures that you've researched that you found particularly interesting? I think when I started this research moment, I just they're, they're just these sort of crazy outliers that, that I didn't know about before um, that I came across. So in the right, okay, so you have the Roman Republic, they conquer an empire, and then you get ultimately civil war, and out of that you get an emperor. Okay, and so as part of that civil war, you have this this woman called Fulvia, who essentially leads an army. Um, and sort of fights alongside Antony and, and, and sort of against Octavian, um, who will ultimately be the emperor. Did they know she was a woman? Oh, yeah. And she was just allowed to lead an army? Yeah. Why? Lord knows, but it worked. Like, it, it seems to have worked. I think she, um, one of the ways in which it worked, is, which it was also constructed, basically she was the partner slash wife of the commander on whose side she was fighting. So, you know, it was this partnership. You know, and I want to say again, sort of facing the world together. Yeah. You know, and that's and that's what they did, and she did it sort of as as yet another general. And we've got the name Cornelia here. Don't know if that's well, that's relevant too. That's that's one of those women who sort of appears in our sources as you know giving bad advice to her sons. We didn't actually find out what your talk is about. If you want to explain that, when the Romans start building their empire, um, that get that's accompanied by a lot of migration and it's migration outwards towards the provinces. So you've got lots of Romans and Italians migrating out there. And my talk is about just quite what they do there economically. So essentially it's about their economic imperialism, um, if you will. And sort of, you know, just as in the British case, just as in the Dutch case, um, you see them acquiring lots of property. Um, and one of the things that they do with it is they sort of produce high-end goods. So, you know, the super luxuries that then in Roman Italy they can sell for lots of money. So and that includes racehorses, super expensive and very, very good wine, and very soft wool, and some very, very good industrial minerals from the island of Milos. Who knew? So when, when they get back and they've got all this extra property, do the wife, wife and the husband just say, oh, you know, we're pooling it all? Or does the wife keep her things on her side and the husband keeps his things on his side in terms of property ownership? Or does it all then go to the husband? Um, one of the constructions is that the woman, that the wife, gives it at, as a loan to her husband. I'm just curious how you got interested in general in kind of ancient histories. Like what first sparked your interest in that area? It's really random because, you know, like something kicks you off and then you just, you know, it becomes something really different. And so, so, so I did classics um, at university. And back then I really liked the sort of the language sort of the language aspect of it which which to me seemed very very rigorous and analytical I liked it basically in the way in which I liked math uh, but at the same time you know it was a it was about ideas and it was sort of about a different time and and that seemed quite intriguing that is all we have time for if you want to know more about Lisa's research is there anywhere that listeners can go to find out more about what you're sure. so I have uh, a page on academia.edu and so you can just find me there 
and there's more details on my homepage at the University of Tübingen. Cool. I'll link that on the uh, ACAST website. Uh, that's acast.com forward slash Very Loose Women. Uh, you can find more episodes of our show there, or you can also have a look for us on iTunes. Or any platform, any podcasting platform, you can look us up. Find us on Facebook, uh, where we are Very Loose Women Revamped, and Twitter where, with the handle at VLW Radio. We do not get enough Twitter and Facebook love. That is very true. Next on Resonance FM is Global Globules with Bacon Face. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks, Lisa, for coming on the show as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You and me were meant to be Walking free in harmony One fine day we'll fly away Don't you know that Rome wasn't built in a day?